Well, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. I'm uh, Dave Deptula, Dean of the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies, and welcome to the release of our new report entitled Speed is Life, Accelerating the Air Force's Ability to Adapt and Win. As many of you are aware, success in tomorrow's conflicts will largely depend on how warfighters are able to harness and adapt software, data, and algorithms at the unit level. The future must be one in which airmen and guardians are empowered to evolve software in a highly dynamic and responsive fashion to meet near-term mission demands. And what this means is a radical departure from the system our Air Force and Space Force, as well as the broader Department of Defense harnesses today, where upgrades are measured in years, not hours, days, or weeks. This demands change across the total defense enterprise, how requirements are written, how both Congress and DOD allocate funding and execute oversight, how weapon systems are managed, how individual units cultivate talent and key relationships with the industrial base. If we don't press for these sort of changes, we're gonna find ourselves pressed a day late, a dollar short every time by our adversaries. They know our current laborious, slow system presents some huge vulnerabilities and they're poised to press hard to win. In many ways, it's akin to the OODA loop uh, and not unlike trying to fly aerobatics in a C-5 while our adversary has a thrust vectoring fighter. So to explain the analysis inclusions of our work, we have with us today, Heather Penny, our senior resident fellow at the Mitchell Institute and we're also joined by our sponsor, Tim Grayson, Director of the Strategic Technology Office at the Defense Advanced Projects or Research Project Agency. So welcome both and uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, and let's begin with a summary of the project. As a note to our audience, um, while Heather's going through that summary presentation, feel free to raise your, uh, your hand with uh, whatever questions you have or submit one in the Q&A window. Uh, during the presentation, and then we'll get to those questions in the second half of the hour. So with that, over to you, Heather. Thank you, sir. We live in a world where when you step to the jet, what you've got is what you get. How you employ as part of a mission is a fixed set of capabilities and software that were decided upon at least five years ago, if not longer. But imagine if during the course of just routine mission planning for that day's sortie, you have the ability to tailor your systems and networks to optimize your force package for that day's objective. We embarked on the study as a result of the work that we've done with DARPA on future warfare, peer competition, and force structure. One of the key findings that's recurred over and over is the need for rapid adaptation of blue forces. This should sound familiar. We've all heard General Brown's charge to accelerate change, but what does that mean? In our research, we've identified three principles to this adaptive advantage. The first is speed. Adaptation has to not just be faster than old blue, but faster than red. We must be able to outpace our adversaries. Second, those changes must provide real operational benefit. It doesn't have to be perfect, just better. And this might be a short-term or long-term advantage, transient or enduring, limited in scope or enterprise-wide. What's key is that the benefit is relevant to the competitive context. 
And finally, these changes must impose confounding effects upon the adversary and confer resilient complexity to friendly forces. In other words, it denies our adversaries effective targeting or the anticipated advantage of attriting blue forces. Adaptation is the new advantage and speed is the new offset. Future operational concepts like multi-domain or all-domain operations, JADC2 and so forth, seek to harness these principles. A key way of doing that is not just what weapons and aircraft we buy, because we know that takes a really long time, but how we use them in new and creative ways that will make the difference. Slide. Our operational architectures, how we fight, and what we have in the battle space and what those relationships and interdependencies are, that will be the main point of adaptive advantage. This means that our battle networks, our data links, are becoming the foundation of how we fight. This reliance will only increase in the future. These architectures will need to be able to fight even while adversaries are attacking our networks. To prevail in a peer conflict, we'll need to be able to adapt our architectures faster than they can attack them. Software programs, what we call mission integration tools, are what will enable this ever-changing and evolving operation. But believe it or not, we found that the primary barriers to being able to field these software tools are bureaucratic. The first barrier is simply the color of money. Money scares people because you can go to jail if you get it wrong. I mean, it's serious stuff. But the funding categories are fundamentally ill-suited for the pace of software development. The rate at which we obligate money for different activities and the limitations we have on who can spend what for what prevents us from fielding software tools. So funding categories are a huge barrier. Next is a lack of a dedicated system program office. Data links, which are the hardware and waveforms that connect the force, are typically managed as part of the overall capability package of a major weapon system. As such, they're subjugated to those developmental and modernization timelines and program priorities. Too often, mission integration falls below the cut line. And finally, our networks are constructed at the COCOM level, where they take months to engineer. Our data link architecture should reflect our operational concepts. Because different kinds of data links are incompatible and have very unique data messages and fixed structures, it takes trained experts to build these overarching battle networks to optimize connectivity. But because the network is difficult to change, because those terminals are fixed, we can't change how we fight. If we're going to answer the call to accelerate change, then we must address these bureaucratic barriers to fielding mission integration software tools that can provide our forces an adaptive advantage. Slide. So if anyone here has done time in the Pentagon, you'll recognize this OV-1. It's a graphic intended to visualize the operational architecture and the connections and data exchanges that facilitate those relationships. So we've been employing this way a long time for net-centric warfare. I mean, even multi-domain operations is not a new concept. Just ask any fighter pilot who's done a close air support mission. It's how we exchange data that has evolved. We wage war as a system of systems because it makes the most out of the force we have. We're both more efficient and importantly, more effective. But our architectures are static. US operational architectures have become predictable because of how the functional and informational relationships are physically built into each weapon system, 
Literally, those are the lines that are connecting the platforms. When each weapon system is designed, they're engineered to fit into this OV-1 as established operational concept. So how a weapon system is envisioned to execute its mission and participate as part of the larger system sets up its function within the system. And it determines how a platform systems, data links, and radios, what those requirements are. In other words, these lines can only connect in limited and well-established ways. And this provides our adversaries a very lucrative target set. Slide. Systems engineering is how we currently build our networks. It's basically figuring out how to best fit the fixed pieces together. What we need to move towards is mission integration. Mission integration is building the operational and functional relationships we want among the platforms we have based off of mission requirements, not hardware limitations. It's shifting the mindset from what can we do to what do we want to do. That's an adaptive advantage. And there's software tools that can empower warfighters to do this today. The first example that you see here is DARPA's Stitches program. Stitches has accomplished a number of what DARPA calls gauntlets, challenging operational tests to prove a technology in actual employment. Stitches is a lightweight software shim that does message translation across different systems without changing message formatting or losing data. And it doesn't require a common standard. Stitches also facilitates operational collaboration at the component level. Simply put, Stitches enables different systems with different languages and software to understand each other and to dynamically work together at a machine to machine level. And this is a real mature capability that has been demonstrated. Build. Another mission integration tool is DARPA's Adaptive Cross-Domain Kill Chain, or ACK. This is a decision aid software that can analyze thousands of potential cross-domain kill webs to recommend the best mission-specific kill chain. And this software program was successfully demonstrated at the last AVMS on-ramp. Build. And a third software tool is Dynamo, or Dynamic Network Adaptation for Mission Optimization. This is a program that can reconfigure networks in real time. Dynamo automatically routes data to the user who needs it at that moment in a mission and manages the flow and prioritization of data so that lower priority does not create a traffic jam for higher priority data. This is especially important when the underlying data links are jammed. This too is a demonstrated and real capability. What's really exciting about mission integration tools is that we don't have to wait for the future force. We can start employing future operational concepts today. And because these software tools don't rely on a common or universal standard, they're both backwards and forwards compatible. Mission integration tools can connect and be the bridge between our legacy force, our current force, and our future force. Slide. But, we can't field them because we don't have the right kinds of money. First of all, we know that JSIDS is already too slow for hardware. So it's definitely not the right process for software. And Congress has recognized this by adding a new funding category, Budget Activity 8, which is intended to capture the full life cycle of software in one category. This should let software speed from concept to product. But BA8, cannot be applied to broad area announcements. 
And this matters because broad area announcements are critical contractual means for research agencies because BAAs are not prescriptive. It's not about specific KPPs and thresholds and objectives. Instead, BAAs seek to allow as much creativity to a company and how they solve the problem. It facilitates innovation. To complicate matters, general counsel interpretations, the lawyers, prevent research agencies from using any budget activity beyond BA4. There's one through eight and budget activities roughly correspond to the developmental cycles from idea to product. So research agencies like DARPA and AFRL are constrained in how they can fund the development of software programs. Mission integration tools also face a unique challenge in transition to an operational command. The adaptive nature, the changing nature of these programs have been defined by the lawyers as research and development, basically 3,600 money. And 3,600 cannot be programmed or obligated by an operational command like ACC. So the color of money is slowing down the speed at which these software tools can be developed and is preventing them from reaching the warfighter. Slide. We've already described how data links are often developed. When weapon systems are designed, we deliberately think about what data exchanges they'll need and what the attributes of that data link should be. The F-22's iFiddle is a prime example. While it, was while it was understood that the F-22 should be able to receive Link-16 data, requirements officers in the early 90s didn't want it to transmit because that'd be a loud omnidirectional beacon. Plus, the F-22 was intended to penetrate Soviet air defenses far past legacy platforms. So while it needed to be able to communicate with its other, with its flight of F-22s, it wasn't meant to communicate with aircraft outside iFiddle was developed for the F-22 as a stealthy data link, low probability of detection, low prob probability of intercept. So when the F-35 was developed a little over a decade later, data link technology had advanced. And so in addition to hosting the full Link-16 capability, the F-35 program developed MATL, the multifunctional advanced data link. But now, because they didn't have the same boxes, the F-35 and the F-22 couldn't talk to each other their hardware and their waveforms were different. And guess what? They still can't. As subjects to major weapon systems, data links have had to compete with other modernization priorities. And typically more traditional combat capabilities went out because integration is seen as communication, not something that will increase lethality. In 2008, the F-22 was supposed to include metal in their modernization program and it got cut. Link 16 is another interesting case that requires a sponsor platform. While there is a system program for Link 16 in the MIDS jitters terminals, it exists solely for contract execution and procurement. It doesn't fund or manage further development of the terminals or the waveform. So a customer platform has to cough up money from their modernization program to enhance Link 16 capabilities. And guess what? No one wants to bite that bullet because if some other program does, then all the Link 16 customers benefit and essentially get the upgrade for free. They can free ride and they don't have to pay for it out of their limited modernization funds. So it's a disincentive to modernize Link 16 data links. It should be clear that relying on a sponsor program not only stovepipes the development of data links that are supposed to connect the force, but it slows down the development of these capabilities because they're not valued as contributing to mission effectiveness or lethality but we know it could be further from the truth. 
slide. Without mission integration software tools, developing a campaign level operational architecture is a complex and thorny systems engineering problem. And the only way to wrap your arms around it is to centralize this work. There are trained specialists to build this network called Joint Integration Control Officers, JICOs. These officers are typically pulled from the air battle management field because ABMs understand the nuances of how US and coalition forces employ as a system. So JICOs are then trained in the Byzantine rule sets that govern how weapon systems can be combined in a network architecture. This centralized management means that networks cannot quickly respond to the changing battle space. Adversaries are well aware of the structure of our data links and their rule sets. And this creates significant vulnerabilities for how we plan to operate. Next. That China plans to pursue a strategy of systems destruction against US and coalition forces shouldn't be a surprise to anyone here. According to Mike Dom, a noted China expert, China has what he calls a cottage industry for how to attack Link 16 because of the thousands and thousands of studies on how to do it. What we should take away from this is that as long as we may remain predictable, as long as our networks are static, we are enabling their strategy for victory. Slide. So how do we fix this into our recommendations? While establishing the new budget activity eight for software pilot programs is a start, it's not enough on its own. Research agencies need access to this funding and they must have the option to do so using a broad area announcement. Furthermore, research agencies must be able to more seamlessly transition these crucial software programs to the operational community without necessarily requiring a full and open competition that extends the timeline to field and may not deliver the same code. Finally, operational commands should have a similar budget activity as BA-8 that enables them to employ, sustain, and evolve mission integration tools at the speed of software. Prohibitions on adaptive or mutable changing software will impact more than just mission integration tools. Any learning algorithm, any AI or ML risks the same fate. Bottom line, we can't let the speed of money slow down the speed of software or the color of it prevent mission integration software tools from reaching the warfighter. Next. So we know that the RCO is the program office for advanced battle management system, and that may or may not be the right home for these mission integration tools. But it is clear that these software tools should not be subject to the good graces of a sponsor weapon systems modernization dollars. To reap the full benefit of this suite of tools, they need to be funded as individual and independent programs of record. Having a SPO dedicated to mission integration, so the Lifecycle Management Center's XA might be another high potential solution, having mission integration software tools under a single SPO will enable the program executive officer to identify the interdependencies, gaps, and opportunities as they come together as a system and ensure that they continue to evolve as warfighter needs. Next. And if the Air Force is going to achieve rapid adaptation of its operational architectures, it must push these tools down to the unit level. JICOs are a natural fit to meet this because of their battle management experience and the knowledge they have of current network architectures. 
with additional specialized training, these mission integration officers can accelerate appropriate change, changes to forward operational uh, architectures. As alluded to previously, these officer, officers must not only hold established and full-time billets at the unit level, they can't just parachute in because they need to have an intimate understanding of their weapon systems and how they employ. These JICOs need to have be resourced, everything from physical space to computer terminals to funding through normal O&M dollars just like any other mission planner or any other operator would be. We must not consider them 3,600. Slide. And finally, employing mission integration tools will not be like building the semi-static data link networks that have facilitated our combat operations for the past 20 years. To fully realize the combat potential of these tools, the Air Force must develop tactics, techniques, and procedures, TTPs, for their employment in both training and combat. Experimenting with how mission integration tools can enhance operations is essential to developing TTPs for effective employment, both for mission integration officers and importantly, for the warfighters who are employing their weapon systems in potentially new ways. These TTPs will serve as the foundation to standardize the use of mission integration tools and be a point of departure for innovation and improvisation for those operations and architectures. This will create a constant cycle of evolution and a way to identify and accelerate new capabilities as they become available. This is really no different from what we do today at Nellis in the Air Warfare Center at the, with the 422 and with annual tactics conferences to update how we employ traditional weapon systems. Furthermore, TTPs can serve to train these officers in how to identify risk, and provide techniques for managing and mitigating risk. Because if we're changing how we do stuff, there is a challenge with managing what that risk will look like. TTPs can help. Across the Air Force, these TTPs serve as best of practices that have been validated, tested, and that provide for a shared standard and body of knowledge for each weapon system community. Mission integration tools should be no different. Slide. So we don't need to wait on negotiating a universal standard or developing some new magic box to begin moving toward the future. We need mission integration tools because they can connect and be the bridge between our legacy force, our current force, and our future force. These mission integration tools can enable these kinds of operations today. But right now, we risk losing our ability to shape, deter, and win in a pure conflict due to bureaucracy. We're letting beam counters and administrative processes guide what we can field and how we can fight, not combat requirements. No war was ever won by a spreadsheet. It's time we take the bureaucratic, it's time we make the bureaucratic changes that will accelerate our operational change. Okay, well, thanks, Heather. Um, it, it warms my heart to hear you assault the bureaucracy like that, and it is justly deserved. So thanks for that uh, overview. And uh, Tim, thanks again for uh, being here. Uh, and what I'd like to do is give you the opportunity to say a few words before we dive into questions. So over to you, Tim. Yeah, so uh, General Deptula, Heather, Mitchell Institute audience, uh, thanks for that opportunity to be here with you today. <clears throat> so um, much of what Heather said, you know, I, I couldn't have said better. Uh, a lot of the motivation for, for this study and our work with Mitchell 
is centered around our office strategy that we call mosaic warfare. Um, and as the, the metaphor in the name implies, rather than looking at, at architectures or better stated warfighting packages as jigsaw puzzles that only go together in one way, the mosaic me metaphor is I'm going to live with whatever tiles I'm given. Yeah, there's some rationale as to the, the shape and material and color distribution and such, but, but there's still sort of this, this general grab bag that I'm going to figure out how to put those together to develop the effect that I need. And so to put it into the context of where the department is today, uh, there, there's a subtitle to Mosaic Warfare that someone suggested to me at one point in time uh, that we call monolith busting. And so, you know, largely as, as Heather described, you could think of system of systems in, in that OV1 lightning bolt diagram that she showed as being monolith busting, where we bust up monolithic platforms into distributed capabilities. We're going to disaggregate, let the, sen the platform with the best sensor for a job do what it does best, let the platform with the best weapon for a job do it does best and have the networks to connect them. And yeah, it's an oversimplification, but I would argue that this is kind of where the JADC2 mindset is today, which is actually exciting. I mean, this is a sea change in just the last five years of the department's thinking, so it's very exciting. But being DARPA, we like to take things a step further. And so with the theme of monolith busting, we're keeping our eye on what I view as a really, really serious risk, depending upon how JADC2 plays out, that the monolithic platforms get replaced with monolithic architectures. We, we cannot have our classic platform-centric, program-centric, linear requirements and acquisition flow end up getting applied to these JADC2-like architectures the way we develop platform programs today. Uh, you know, with all due respect to our Army brethren, it, for those of us who are old enough, uh, may have lived part of the Army Future Combat System, which is an example of what happens when you take a brilliant idea. I still love the concept behind Future Combat System, but it was an attempt to essentially replace the entire mission set of the Army with distributed system of systems in a very hardwired monolithic architecture. And the dependencies, the brittleness, and the overarching complexity that we'd love to impose on the adversary ended up being imposed upon ourselves. And, and that program died under its own mass. So, so instead, under Mosaic Warfare, we want to bust up monolithic architectures, not rely on any one architecture, any one widget, any one standard, any one network, and instead be able to say, what does the warfighter need today? In short, what we're doing is adding another dimension to system of systems. If system of systems and these disaggregated things are giving us diversity and, and options through those combinatorics, what we're doing with Mosaic Warfare is bringing speed. We want to be able to compose those architectures. And architecture is such a geeky engineering term. How about compose a force package? How about develop a mission plan? We'd like to be able to provide the tools to let a warfighter build that mission package, build that mission plan, yes, involving architectures and networks and technical things that are tailored to the immediate need. And we'll talk more about this, I think, when we get into Q&A discussion, but we've actually had successful demonstrations of the power of this speed and the timelines. There's a very nonlinear relation where if you can go fast enough, 
all of a sudden we really can't afford to tailor to need. If I'm stuck working years in advance or even months in advance, I'm left with our legacy DOD approach that's very forecast centric. I try to predict what the future fight's going to be, what the capabilities are going to be. I try to adapt to all possible contingencies. And then I over provision uh, to, to make sure I span all those contingencies. And that's why we get such expensive, complex, you know, difficult to build, difficult to field capabilities. What we have found in much of our work is that in this nonlinear time relationship, if I can get close enough to the fight, all of those uncertainties associated with the forecasting go out the window. That sight picture is very clear. I know what I've got to fight with. I know what my mission objective is. I know what the adversary is and, and, and what the risks are. And I can build a subset of those over-provision capabilities that actually gives me a better solution for that particular fight with less. So that's effectively what we're trying to enable with Mosaic Warfare. So, you know, we're not going to talk today about individual programs, but we've got a portfolio of about 20 technology programs spanning different functional areas, providing the tools needed to do this very rapid, just-in-time integration to meet mission needs. And as Heather uh, uh, said in her comments, our real big challenge now is how to transition those. Uh, we don't have a nice clean cut program office where we can take our tools and put them directly into a classic conventional program of record. They're not designed to do those kind of things. They're enabling infrastructure. And I think we'll talk more about this in the Q&A discussion, but it goes beyond that. A lot of the tools that we're building don't need further development like you normally would going from S&T into production. They just need to be used. But that means that in this transition, what we're really talking about doing is not buying technology, but buying bodies, buying human beings that will go out and use these tools to conduct mission planning. Now, if you put it in that context, that does not sound like RDT&E, but yet because it's technology, because it's coming from DARPA, because it smells like still needing to develop something, and develop comes up in the word, even if it's developed force package, the current mindset is it's got to go to some kind of program of record. So that is one of our fundamental impediments to moving all of this forward, and it's why I'm really happy to be here with, with Mitchell today and, and with the work that you all have done. So uh, with that, uh, I'll hand it back to you, and, and we can go into further discussion. Well, thanks, Tim. Uh, appreciate that. Now what I'd like to do is uh, dig into some of the points you both have raised in greater uh, detail. Um, let me start with you, Tim. And one of the programs that started us researching this issue more deeply is your experience with working uh, to transition the Stitches mission integration tool. Now, despite its maturity, success, and the clear value to operations, the Air Force has been unable to field it. Uh, could, could you give us an update on just where Stitches stands today? So actually, it's, it's pretty exciting. It, it, it has been a rough and rocky road, but uh, kudos to, to the Air Force and, and frankly, a really strong team effort between a couple different parts of the Air Force, uh, and, and including the chief architect uh, and uh, OSD R&E and then ourselves here at DARPA. I think we have gotten over the hump. Uh, I, I think we are seeing a light at the end of the tunnel uh, on that fielding. Um, it's worth making a comment back to the, the statement I made. 
earlier about what fielding means with stitches. And, and perhaps, uh, if you'll indulge me, a little bit of backdrop on what stitches has accomplished to date that, that's led to this, this fielding. Uh, stitches, for those in the audience who are not familiar with it, is a software tool. It doesn't create interoperability itself, but if you think about different systems coming together that have different data formats and different message types that are incompatible with each other, our legacy approach is some software engineer sits there and writes a software patch. Stitches does that automatically. It's an automated tool that the warfighter can say, here's my architecture, go generate a patch for me. So Stitches has been used uh, up through about 2019 in nine unique gauntlets. The, these were system of systems type exercises where they were in a you know, course of a week, actually in some cases less than an hour, able to go uh, create a new architecture. So it's been very successful. After 2019, it turned into just a continuous use tool. So right now, uh, working with the Air Force, we've created something that is being called the SWAT team, Stitches Warfighter Application Team, that is being stood up under the new ACC Spectrum Supremacy Wing. Uh, SWAT, again, this is, does not to me sound like a program of record RDTNE thing, SWAT is people, and someone from across the Air Force, or maybe depending upon policies from across DOD as a joint activity, will call up SWAT and say, I've got an integration problem. This could be anything from trying to get a new box onto a platform to doing some large-scale JADC2 COCOM kind of exercise. The, the Stitches team will go out, help them with that interoperability problem, and then don't just give a man a fish, teach him how to fish. Leave the software tool behind with them, train them how to use it, and then provide reachback help desk support. So this is becoming real. Uh, this, is, this SWAT team is a services kind of capability that is going to be able to help promulgate integration activity across the department. But again, it's been a rocky road getting here, and, and we still have to keep our eye on the ball and how we sustain it. Yeah, thanks for that. Now, Heather, Tim just described the problems that he's facing working a transition, a mission integration tool that warfighters have said they want. But this isn't just about the acquisition of a software program. Um, could you take some time to describe what other budgetary accommodations need to be made to enable the employment of these tools? I mean, after that's right, sir. So, yeah. um, yeah, it, you know, and with all the new uh, aircraft that hopefully we'll be able to bring on board and uh, advanced capabilities and so forth, we need to be able to connect and use all of those systems from legacy platforms to advanced platforms. And what Tim just said was that, um, you know, the SWAT team will be able to, to train up individuals, but we'll need to have um, those mission integration officers at the unit level to be able to then employ those mission integration tools on a daily basis. And as you mentioned, as Tim mentioned, you know, this ends up being as much a personnel and manpower problem as it is a software acquisition problem. And so what we'll need to be able to do is change unit manning documents to begin embedding these mission integration officers full time uh, as key components uh, you know, whether, you know, whether or not they live in, in the maintenance squadron or they live in the intelligence squadron um, or they're in the mission planning cell or they're there in operations, they'll be crucial uh, resources to ensure that 
we're able to adapt as Tim was describing what we need to be able to do to accomplish that mission that day. And as I mentioned in the, in the presentation, it is this challenge of how do the lawyers define changing these, you know, changing these capabilities, changing these mission packages, um, uh, programming machine to machine collaboration. Uh, and right now they define that as Tim said, development, 3,600 money. So again, we're letting the bean counters and, and the lawyers uh, stop us from me being able to adapt our, the way we fight and how we fight and how we play together uh, this, they're preventing us from being able to do that. So those are the budgetary accommodations that need to be made is fundamentally about pushing, putting people into operations so that they can employ this uh, and not defining them under $3,600, but really under O&M. And this is, this is a crucial piece that we need to be able to address. So um, let's say that we're able to fund these officers through O&M funding uh, just like we do uh, intelligence personnel or air battle managers. Um, why do you think that these mission integration personnel should be officers? Why not enlisted or contract civilians? Well, it comes down to the same reason that air battle managers and pilots are officers because of the potential impact of their actions and the, the scope of those effects and their responsibilities and authorities. So these mission integration officers will be taking initiative to change uh, mission packages, operational architectures, how we employ, and even suggest alternate structures to achieve desired effects. Whether or not they're knitting together um, how machine to machines are going to collaborate. So this all implies a higher level of responsibility and frankly innovation that implies that they should be officers. And the reason why we think, why, why we also believe that it's not the contractor's job is that they need to be embedded full-time in those operational units able to train and deploy, and importantly, go to combat. Yeah, no, very good. Tim, back to you. Um, we've explored how mission integration tools uh, can connect, uh, configure, and even translate uh, different weapon systems into an operational architecture. Yet the joint staff doesn't seem to be going in that direction. Instead, they're seeking uh, kind of the way we've always done business in the past, and they're looking toward a universal standard. Uh, could you share with our audience the benefits and constraints that a universal standard would impose on any future force design? And what might this mean for trying to achieve the JADC2 vision? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I do want to say in a little bit of deference to, to the, the J6 and the folks and the joint staff, uh, the jury's still out. Uh, in, in fact, uh, as we speak, I'm, I'm missing today the, the next iteration of their big uh, JADC2 data summit. So, uh, I, I think they are hearing some of the message of what we call a federated approach as opposed to a common approach. But, but the key there, uh, there, there are a couple big issues with that, with that common approach. Um, the, the first is technical. Uh, you know, think about the, the difference between a Swiss Army knife and, and a Dremel tool, for those of you who are tool geeks. You know, the Dremel tool can be this one little tiny widget that goes in on the end of a device as opposed to this big bulky thing, if I want to have all the same capabilities that have to all fit within the same tool, um, there is a price that's paid by moving to that commonality. Uh, there's a price in efficiency. There's a, there's a price in, in uh, the, the amount of data that has to be moved. Um, and ultimately, there are compromises. 
you know, because I, I can't do everything perfectly. So instead I'm going to do everything at a good enough level. Um, so, so that's a problem from a technical perspective. Then the other one is the organizational and the cultural issue. Uh, you know, if, if we, uh, if, if we insist on everything having to be common, uh, a lot of these meetings I've been in, it usually starts, the discussion usually starts not with an, an operational need or even a technical approach, but what's the governance model? You know, that's hugely dangerous. Um, you know, when we, when well, we talk governance want, first before I, function. I don't want to cut you out, but it also begs the question of if you're operating in coalitions with many, many different countries, as well as many, many different manufacturers of different systems, um, that complicates the problem even more. You're absolutely right. And, and, and by the way, when you're talking different systems and, and manufacturers, that brings the time dimension into it as well. You know, because I've, I've had discussions with people who have said, well, okay, we buy your federated model for legacy capabilities, but in the future, if we come up with the right global standard for the future and everyone builds it, it's going to be great. Well, guess what? At what point in time, even within our own U.S. DOD, are we going to have every program across the DOD all phase synchronized and coherent with each other? It, it ain't going to happen. And, and as you point out, coalition, industry, proprietary needs, we are never going to be phase coherent like that across all our capabilities. So inevitably, by the time we got to common, all those future things will actually be legacy. Uh, and so we, we always have to keep pushing this notion of federated. And in fact, I would argue it slows down our modernization and our development of new capabilities because common pushes the notion of things have to be coherent and aligned with each other, which means I can't speed things up unnaturally. So the only way I get everything aligned is by slowing some things down. Uh, so, so there are a number of reasons why at the end of the day, and, and, and the final thought is just resiliency and, and security. If everything has to be the same, I've created a brittleness uh, and, and a wonderful attack surface uh, from a uh, cyber perspective. So Tim, um, could you quickly, because I want to get to audience questions here, uh, share your thoughts on current efforts among the services to work toward the vision of JADC2 and all domain operations. Specifically, how does the Air Force's ABMS, the Army's convergence, and the Navy's overmatch uh, fit together? So, so they, they all have similar themes. And you know, I'm, I'm not going to sit here today and, and pick sides or, or do a relative scoring between where they are. Um, I, I would say, on the one hand, in fact, one of the things I talk about sometimes are waves of JADC2, or if I want to be parochial, waves of mosaic. They are all good efforts to start creating a very tangible, concrete picture of what this future distributed system of systems kind of warfighting looks like. So in that regard, I really applaud them and, and, and think they're strong, positive uh, activities. The couple of dangers I see, the first, the first is, you know, this risk that they turn into monolithic architectures. And, and there is an interesting difference in philosophy Whereas um, there are different degrees between the three services to which these JADC2 activities are um, considered programs of record versus considered more experimentation concepts. And, and frankly, while considering them programs of record is great from getting resources, 
I think it's also dangerous back to building monoliths and, and, and building common architectures. So my, my tendency is to lean toward the, the meta concept and the experimentation view. The, the uh, um, other interesting aspect, uh, two other interesting aspects. One is the, the pace. You know, one of the things we're pushing, and, and we, we may or may not uh, have time here to talk about experimentation, but, you know, I, I am a little bit concerned that because of the magnitude of, of these things, that the, you know, whether they're quarterly, semi-annually, annually, they become relatively static large exercises. You know, whereas at the end of the day, if we truly want to get to this future warfighting concept, agility is the name of the game, which means we have to be agile in our experimentation. So we need to be thinking smaller experimentation that's faster and more continuous uh, and can fail and is open-ended and allows free play and, and all of those kind of things. Not scripted and has to succeed because we're only going to do it a couple times a year and it's going to get lots of visibility. And, and in the last comment I'll make, and this is going to sound like a negative, but, but I think it's consistent with my, my theme of federated. I, I have a former program manager that, that you all know quite well that pointed out that really what we've got in those efforts is service all domain command and control or SAD C2. Um, and, uh, and while it, it sounds a little bit uh, uh, negative, it, it really isn't. Because like, like I said before, let's take this bottoms up federated approach. You know, the services know their mission. They know how to conduct their operations. So I'm actually not put off by, you know, the Air Force doing something that's air-centric that has a little bit of Army or Navy sprinkled in, you know, or likewise the Navy doing something that's very Navy-centric that has a little bit of Air Force sprinkled in. I don't think that's a bad way to start moving toward this broader JADC2 vision. Again, instead of waiting until we've got this top-down Big Bang moment. Okay, well, look, there's so much more to discuss, but uh, I'd like to move to audience questions. So, Tim, thanks so very much for joining us. Um, Heather, your work on this study is really moving the department in the right uh, direction. Uh, so thanks for uh, uh, both of your hard work and effort in this regard. So we're going to open the session now to questions from the audience uh, who've been listening to the conversation. Uh, feel free to direct your question to one or more of the panelists. And um, with that, uh, let me kick off with a question that's related to one I just asked you, Tim. This is from Jackson Barnett. And here's his question. Does Project Overmatch, Convergence, or ABM-esque risk falling into the trap of the Army's future combat system? Which one is closest to that trap of being a prescriptive architecture versus flexible? So again, I'm, I'm not going to fall into the question trap of, of you know, picking sides of one service over the other here. And, and frankly, I, I think in fairness, um, I, I don't have good enough visibility into their details, and, and, and I think their own details are still evolving. So I, I'm not willing to sit here today and say that any are falling into specifically this monolithic trap. I, I will come back and reiterate the, the statement I made before, though, about how a lot of the exercises are conducted. Uh, in, in the stitches gauntlets that we alluded to earlier, uh, there was very little advanced planning and zero scripting. You know, we would show up to those gauntlets with a theme, and that would dictate what kind of systems we brought. But beyond that, there was no script. We had real operators who would show up for those gauntlets, and they would develop scenarios on the fly. What if we did this? What if this particular system attrited? What would you do then? 
and created new architectures and new scenarios and vignettes on the fly. I think in all of these, that's how we avoid near term. They got again, they got to do something uh, concrete and tangible. And I'm not saying the services that we have all the answers and the services should just wait to DARPA and use all our tools. But I think if we get more of that free play into these big exercises and make them a little bit less, you know, planned for success, that we'll learn a lot more and, and move forward the whole concept faster. Okay, thank you. For Heather, um, ABMS was recently housed in the Rapid Capabilities Office or RCO. Um, is this where mission integration tools should also reside? Well, potentially, as we mentioned, um, you know, you have RCO leading ABMS and these mission integration tools seem to be a natural fit to be able to facilitate the vision of connectivity that ABMS has. Um, you know, but we also have an integration office within the Lifecycle Management Center. So frankly, I'm kind of agnostic so long as the vision of uh, the, the SPO is able to facilitate really bringing these capabilities forward in the unique way that, that Tim has described and that we described in our presentation. No, good. Thank you for that. Um, here's one from Jay Grove. Um, is there not also multifunction hardware requirements such as advanced multifunction programmable phased arrays, which we have recently discussed with uh, DARPA, that will further enable uh, agile functionality for sensing and resulting adaptation? So I, I'm not sure if that's a technical question about systems or, or if it's about how we buy those kind of things, but I'll, I'll quickly comment on both. I, I think in general, we are bullish on those kind of adaptive hardware technologies that can host the software. That being said, there's also a potential danger attached to them that, that I call the Battlestar Galactica problem. You know, I, I can make something multifunction, multi-mission, everything, and, and, you know, be the magic link that, that goes into any of these architectures. But if that thing becomes so big and bloated and expensive that I can only afford a few of them, then, then I'm back to brittle architectures and I'm kind of stuck. So, so there is a balancing act about how adaptive and, and multifunction we make things. I, I think if you look at it from the acquisition side, um, it's a little bit different with hardware because I'm not going to go create hardware out of the ether uh, you know, for a particular mission, the way I was talking about with configuring software and the stitches tool. So, so you remove hardware from those mission timelines. But I think beyond that, some of the same issues about the requirements process and flexibility still apply. Um, you, you know, because we usually start things from KPPs, if I want something like an adaptive array that can serve a lot of different functions and capabilities, I don't want to lock that into one set of KPPs. And, and we've actually seen in prior programs that we've transitioned out of DARPA <clears throat> where you know, there is no requirement for adaptability. We don't know how to quantify that. And so sometimes there are program offices that will say, well, yeah, we love the couple of widgets you've got in this, this adaptive system, but all the other stuff that allows the adaptivity, we don't want it. So let's just pull out those couple of widgets um, because there is no requirement for adaptability. So I, I, think, I think there are still some open-ended issues on even how we buy that kind of hardware. 
Okay, here's one from uh, John uh, Turpak of Air Force Magazine. Who has the duty to get the necessary permissions from Congress to allow the changes to the color of money necessary to fix these issues? Is it uh, Air Force uh, Legislative Affairs, OSD, who? Well, I would say that um, I think that this would be the responsibility not only of Congress because of their oversight. So they should be educated on some of the constraints and limitations that these kinds of colors of money impose upon uh, not just the Air Force, but all of the services. And so it is OSB's responsibility to help assist in educating Congress uh, about the problems that these financial categories pose. So you saw in the 2018 NDAA, that's where um, uh, you began to see um, these new software BA-8 funding categories to try to address what had been identified by the department um, as mismatches between how they could spend money and the speed of software. Um, so it, it really is a relationship between OSD, the senior leadership there, and Congress to be able to solve this because this is not an Air Force specific issue, although obviously as the Mitchell Institute, we're looking at it from an Air Force perspective. This is a challenge that's gonna be facing all of the services because mission integration tools are service and you know they're service agnostic because of the, the unique capabilities that these um, software tools bring. So it isn't just about the Air Force, it's about how do we knit together the total force in those unique mission packages. So I would say it's, it is the relationship between OSD and Congress that needs to be able to address this. And it's not just about mission integration tools. It's about every kind of changing and adaptive type of software that we'll have, which includes autonomy, AI, anything that has machine learning sprinkled into it. And there'll also be other challenges that need to be addressed beyond just the color of money into how do we then begin to do test and verification and so forth. But that's probably some other study, <laughs> not today. <laughs> and if I can just pile on slightly, I think Congress overall has actually been uh, incredibly strong advocates for a lot of this. Uh, certainly they have been with the, the Stitches activity. Uh, I think that the Stitches activity is the way to address this problem, not Stitches specifically, but that process, you know, for all the lumps we took along the way. The only way you discover these issues is by trying it. So, so this is call it programmatic experimentation in parallel to, to warfighting experimentation. I, I will say the other thing in terms of the relationship with Congress, the authorizers have been huge advocates and tremendous help. Uh, and, and because, you know, if you look at a lot of what we're talking about, it's very consistent with what they've been talking about with, uh, you know, various types of acquisition reform issues over the years. The bigger challenge, and it's, it's not a knock on them, but, but tied to the way they do business, it's the appropriations process, you know, because that's where there is a tendency to say, I want things very countable. I, I need accountability. So this definite, by definition, this, this nature of trying to be very adaptive and trying to leave a lot of discretionary uh, uh, freedom on the money side is counter to the, the concepts of, of accountability. So rather than specifically saying, hey, let's get someone to talk and fix Congress, you know, one of the things we can do, you know, fixing our own house first is to think about how we can generate that accountability. How, how would cre we create a basis of estimate and a way to, to measure, you know, how well we're spending that money while we have discretion? And I think that's another interesting open-ended problem uh, to look at at some point. Tim, I'll just do a quick follow-up uh, because you mentioned accountability. 
And that's one of the major concerns um, in changing the colors of money or providing more flexibility to the services and the departments and how they spend because those budget activities provide oversight, accountability, metrics, and control to Congress. And that's their constitutional responsibility. So as Tim said, we need to develop um, means to be able to provide that kind of oversight as well as providing the kind of flexibility that the services will need to be able to um, develop and field these capabilities. Okay, here's one from uh, Valerie and Sina of uh, Defense News uh, for Dr. Grayson. Are any of the technologies that you mentioned going to be transitioned to the ABMS program of record? If not, what are the obstacles that are keeping that from happening? It seems like if a technology like Stitches is ready, the Air Force could roll that into the first increment of ABMS that the service hopes to field over the next couple of years. So I think the short answer is we don't have much right now explicitly going into ABMS. Um, I, I think in some regards, we're out ahead of where ABMS is. So it, until they have that you know, kind of figured out what they want ABMS to be, it's sort of hard for us to directly transition. I, I will say that what we've been doing with transition, uh, you know, I, I, I like to tell my program managers, we got to eat our own dog food when it comes to this federated business. And so these 20 some programs that we have, there is no program called Mosaic Warfare. You know, just like I don't think there should be a monolithic JADC2 program, there is no Mosaic Warfare program. Each one of those programs in our portfolio has standalone value. So they've been off transitioning into individual activities. Dynamo that, that Heather mentioned has actually gone to a NAV Air program office uh, supporting uh, Marine Corps uh, aviation uh, assets. Um, so, so we've got those bits and pieces transitions that aren't explicitly ABMS or explicitly JADC2. The challenge we have now that we are working with things like ABMS and the other service JADC2 elements is how do we keep coherence? You know, at, at, you send your kid off to college and how do you make sure he writes home to you? Uh, you know, so, so we are working with them. Maybe the answer is experimentation. Maybe it's program of record transition. You know, but but you know we've we've got to maintain some kind of coherence across this federated portfolio as these programs go off and have their own lives. Well, thank you for that, and uh, everybody. Unfortunately, we've come to the end of Mitchell Institute's rollout of our policy paper, "Speed is Life: Accelerating the Air Force's Ability to Adapt and Win." So um, I commend it to all of you, as there are some. Uh, down on the detail, but very explicit uh, and uh, necessary recommendations in the report. So to Heather, Penny, and Tim Grayson, um, many thanks to sharing your insights into these critical issues. And from all of us at Mitchell Institute, have a great aerospace power kind of day.